0: happens with regard to sinners and what God has provided for us in the person of his Son. The first thing we observe is we are charged by the Apostle John not to sin, not to sin. Now, in light of John's affirmation at the close of chapter 1, in which he says If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It may seem a bit ludicrous to us for John to say, I write to you this, that you will not sin. Yeah, Anybody see any contradiction with that? I mean, in one breath, John is saying that if we deny that we are sinners, we're full of self-deception. And he says in verse 10 that such denial is to call God a liar, And then in the next breath, he charges us not to sin, chapter 2, verse 1. Seems very contradictory to us. How can people be so incontrovertibly identified with sin in one instance and told not to sin in another? Which is it? Are we sinners or are we not? And if we are, how can God, uh, God tell us through John, do not sin? Well, the Bible is a word from God which lays before us the truth of what we are and the truth of what we could be and ought to be as new creatures in Christ. Because men are sinners and break God's law on a regular basis is no warrant for refraining from telling people that they should not do that. Don't we do the same with our children? We do not hesitate to command them to obey just because we know they are prone to disobedience. Sammy, when you stay with your Aunt Charlotte on the weekend, I want you to be in bed, lights out by 9.30 p.m. But Sammy may think there is nothing wrong with staying up till 10.30 because after all, Dad won't know about it anyway unless Aunt Charlotte... Spills the beans, which isn't very likely. Let me say that God always makes his appeals to unregenerate sinners based upon their responsibilities, not their abilities. Important theological point. So the implication is obey because you should, not necessarily because you can. Why is this so? Because God has not lost his right to command because through the fall, sinners have lost their ability to obey. In other words, God does not dumb down his standard to all the incorrigibles so that they can pass muster. No, the standard is none other than perfection, and it's perfection because God himself is perfection. There's a false notion in our day that says to unsafe sinners, well, if God commands you, then you can do it. If God commands you to do this, then you can do it. And the logic is this. God would never command us to do something we can't do So his command is proof of your ability. But this is an assumption that God's commands are an appeal to ability rather than to responsibility. Let me give you some examples from the teachings of Christ that I think will clarify this. John 6, Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. John 6, verse 29. This is what ought to be. God commands that. God sent his son into the world as one who accurately and truthfully represents the way to forgiveness and peace with God. Sinners are charged to believe in him. But in the same chapter, just a few verses later, Jesus went on to say, You have seen me, and still you do not believe. Verse 36. Now they ought to believe, but they don't believe. They asked, here was their question, What must we do to do the work God requires? And Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. It's an appeal to their responsibility. Jesus said, you have seen me and still you do not believe. Now some would say, well, that just states what happened on that occasion. They could have believed, they just chose not to believe. They had the ability, but not the will to obey. Well, let's read on a little further in the same chapter, John 6, because in less than ten more verses, Jesus went on to tell these unbelievers, stop grumbling among yourselves, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, verse 44. In verse 65, he gives the meaning. This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Now enablement, brethren, is ability. And Jesus is saying there is no enablement to believe in him. There is no ability to come to him in faith unless God the Father does the work inside the person. Philippians 2 verse 13 words it this way. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Nonetheless, Jesus told these people repeatedly to believe in him and he chided them for their unbelief. His appeal was to what they should have done not to what they could do. They should have believed in God's Son. They should have believed His teaching. They should have responded aright to His miracles, which pointed to His divinity. They should have been discerning enough to tell the difference between lies and truth. But they were stuck in their sin. That blinded them. So they could not do could not do as Christ commanded. Now, this is true of all sinners, all sinners except one group of sinners. Saved sinners are empowered with the Holy Spirit of Christ indwelling them. And so when Jesus says to Christians who are sinners, I write this to you so that you will not sin. It is an appeal to both responsibility on the one hand and ability on the other hand. Both for the believer. Every unbeliever has to sin. He cannot do anything but sin. He's a slave of sin. He cannot free himself from that. John 8 verse 34. Conversely, every Christian is a new creature in Christ. He has a new nature that's capable of pleasing God through obedience. This is why Paul can say, as he does say, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Wow, there's a change there. He talks about the slavery of sin, but when he talks about believers, no longer are the slaves of sin. Therefore, he goes on, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God and offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. Christian sinners do sin, but they don't have to. They don't have to. They have the empowerment of God to be obedient to God's will. And this is why John dare write to his people, so that you will not sin. So, what happens if we do sin as believers? We know better. We can do better, but what if we don't? That's the second point in your outline. Jesus is our advocate. Chapter 2, verse 1, the latter part of the verse, But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. King James Version says, We have an advocate with the Father. NIV translates what an advocate does. One who speaks in our defense. That's an advocate. You see, an advocate is a lawyer. It is someone who knows the law, who knows the judicial system, and can present a defense for the accused before the judge. That's an advocate. In our day, defense lawyers do not always have a good reputation, because they sometimes know their clients are guilty, and yet they will use every twist in the law, every trick in the book, to get their clients off. We pay them for their knowledge. We pay them because of their ability to be persuasive in argument, to raise doubt of guilt, to prove innocence if that's the case, and to belittle and minimize any evidence the prosecutor may have to the contrary. Even if the truth be said, the methods don't always evidence of above-board conduct, people don't care. (laughs) They just don't want to come under the penalty of the law. That's the bottom line. So they have an advocate that they hope will outsmart the prosecutor. John enjoins us, however, to put away all such thoughts about our advocate before the father why well because our lawyer is Jesus Christ the righteous one as the righteous one Jesus is not about to defend you and me using trickery or by twisting the law or using other illicit and godless methods no he who cannot lie does not lie titus 1 verse 2 the last verse of this chapter says what verse 29 If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So doing what is right is the mark of righteousness. Christ, the righteous one, has to do what's right. He has to do it when he's our advocate. You say, well then... uh, we are in big trouble because John says if anybody does sin, then, in other words, if we did it, if we did sin, we're guilty and there is no defense. End a case, slam the gavel, bailiff, haul off Mr. Luke to the prison system to await his execution. If the wages of sin is death, and it is, Romans 6 verse 23, What possible defense can Jesus offer God the judge to exonerate us? We're just doomed. Our goose is cooked. Now our logic, our logic overwhelms our minds and drives us to despair. So watch that. We are informed enough to know that God does judge sinners. We know that. Isaiah 13, verse 11 says, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. Or in Jeremiah, the prophet writes, Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of Him, declares the Lord the Lord Almighty. Paul writes in the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, No one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to lead a holy life. So this being the case, what possible defense Can Christ make for us before the Father as the righteous one when our guilt is obvious, by John's own words, if anybody does sin, and he's not suggesting that we don't, he's suggesting that we do, then we need help. Well, not only is Christ our advocate to kind of plead the case, secondly, he is the atoning sacrifice. There was a famous court case years ago between Pacific Gas and Electric, and there a file clerk, Aaron Brockovich, uncovered a cover-up to hide the fact that the company's use of a toxic chemical, hexavalent chromium, had poisoned the town of Hinckley's water supply. Dozens of people were contracting all sorts of illnesses including ulcers, sores, cancer, even death. And Aaron convinced her attorney boss to open a class action suit against the company at his own expense. What was so unusual is that he mortgaged his business, his home, he sold all of his stocks, he sold his bonds to pay to defend his poor clients who didn't have any resources to go to trial. He literally bankrupt himself To defend them. When Christ Jesus acts as our advocate before God for our sin, he does so at his own expense. Even more, he argues for our forgiveness and acquittal on the merit of his own atoning work. Ed Masry, the boss, used his own money to plead the case of his client's But no amount of money can settle accounts with God for your sin and mine because the wages of sin isn't money, it's death, it's death. So Christ pleads his own atoning work. He pleads his death for yours, his death for mine. A stand-in for the real criminal, a substitute sacrifice which will appease God and let us off the hook. This is one of the few places in the Bible which uses this Greek word, helasmos, translated propitiation in the King James Version and atoning sacrifice in the NIV. Propitiation is a better translation if people know what it means. But some don't like it when they find out what it means. (laughs) Here's why. Propitiation implies that God is angry with sinners, that he is extremely upset with them. In fact, he is so angry and upset that he will punish all sinners, and the punishment is not a slap on the wrist, nor a tongue lashing, but eternal confinement in the tortures of hellfire. Now you know why people don't like the term. They cannot abide thinking of God as being that angry, that offended with their disobedience to his laws. After all, isn't God love? Well, if he's love, how does all of this judgment and anger and wrath, how does that fit in? Well, of course, the biblical answer is, as we have read previously, that God is more than love. He is also just. And it is just, it is just to punish criminals who break his law. Just as it is just to bring those to justice who break the laws of the United States. So propitiation implies that all is not well between sinners and God. God needs to be propitiated, that is to say, he needs to be appeased, to cool down. What will turn his anger away? That's what we need. Well, nothing short of a perfect stand-in substitute. Here John tells us that if anybody does sin, we have an advocate to speak our defense before the Father. Yes, and we also have an atoning sacrifice which appeases God and turns his wrath away from us. This term, he last months, <clears throat> is used in the Septuagint to describe the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. When the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, God was atoned. That is to say, He was satisfied. His wrath was turned away. I like the term propitiation. And I like the fact that in this term, there is an alternative alternative for God pouring out His wrath on me for my sins. The alternative is is his son. I like the truth that if Jesus' cross work, if his death satisfies God's anger about my sin, then I may go free. I may be forgiven. I may have eternal life. Not eternal damnation and punishment. That's our Savior. And that's what John is saying about him. Mr. Masri emptied his bank account to defend poor people in the lawsuit against Hooker Chemical. But Jesus Christ, the scripture says, made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to da- death, even death, on a cross. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. Jesus paid the ultimate price. He said, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to, do, to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, John 15 verse 13 and following. Jesus laid down his life and he became the atoning sacrifice for his friends, those he chose out of the world and appointed to bear fruit for his glory. What do we do with the last phrase in verse 2? He is the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins but also for the sins of the whole world. Universalists read this verse and they love it because they think it supports their teaching that Jesus died and he paid the price for every last person on earth. And so, here's their conclusion, all will be saved because if atonement is made, then wrath is averted. I would just say be careful about reading too much into terms like The whole world, or all the world, or just the word world. We tend to be inclusive in our thinking when we hear these terms. But it is a biblical fact that every time the Bible uses the word world, there are qualifiers which limit its scope. Let me give you some examples. In Luke 2 verse 1, King James Version It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Now, is Luke telling us that every last person on earth living in the day of Caesar Augustus' decree were compelled to go to their birth city to be taxed? No. The idea is, as NIV translates, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, the world which owed its allegiance to Augustus. You may I say that the Germanic and Eastern cultures could care less about what Augustus decreed, but in his world, in his world, he reigned supreme. You better care. Or again in Romans 1, verse 9, Paul writes, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. The words world is there. Does this mean that the faith of the Roman believers was spoken in China, in Indonesia, in Britain, in the Netherlands, and so on? No, it means wherever Paul traveled in his missionary journeys, which would be Asia, Greece, Spain, or as the gospel expanded to Alexandria and northern Africa by merchants, tradesmen, and immigrants, the faith of the Roman believers was well known. But this was a limited world. It was not every last person on earth. Again, Paul told the church at Colossae, of the gospel that had come to them. All over the world, he says, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Colossians 1, verse 6. Here again, the effect of the gospel is only occurring in the world in which it is being preached. The unreached regions of the world know nothing of its effect. So what's the way world is used in our text when he says of Christ? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, John is saying that the only atoning sacrifice the world is going to get to appease God is Jesus Christ. There are not many ways to appease God and avert his judgment. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, verse 6. What is more, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, not only for Jews, but for Gentiles, indeed for every race, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and, it, and if it's not for, even if it's not for each person, it's all those classifications. What he's saying here is that God is colorblind in his saving word. He's also blind to culture. And he's blind to local taboos. And he's blind to man-made false religions. And to one station in society. It is in this sense that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. The only Savior the world is going to get. They can look all they want at some, for somebody else or another Christ. Jesus says in the last days there will be many Christs. They'll be claiming, I'm him. He's warning us, don't you believe it. Now what are some truths to To cheer our heart. One would not think that talking about sin would be an occasion for any kind of cheer. But John's underlying theme is in 2 verse 12. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. So we're not just sinners. We are forgiven sinners. How? Forgiven through the advocacy of Christ, number one. It's pretty well accepted by all the major religions of the world that prayer to God, or God's uh, plural, is expected and cultivated as part of one's worship. Jared was talking about morning worship uh, this morning. The problem with the prayers of sinful men is how can we be sure that God hears us, accepts our petitions, our confessions, forgives us our sins, and will bless us when we pray. For many religions, the worshipers pray in the dark. That is to say, they hope their prayers are heard, they hope their prayers are answered, but they don't know. They pray out of duty, but not with confidence, not with assurance. Well, Christianity teaches something different. Christianity teaches that not only do believers pray to God, but God prays for us. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Unheard of. Our text even indicates what kind of prayer Jesus makes for us. It says, if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Hmm. In our defense, and that one is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. His prayers will defend us when we sin. And the defense is that he paid for those sins with his own life. Before we ever knew God, Jesus prayed for us. John 17, Jesus prayed for the apostles and then he said this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Every believer here this morning is the product of the gospel taught by these apostles. The New Testament portion of your Bible was mostly written by these men, along with some of their co-workers like Luke and John Mark. You learned of Jesus, you learned of salvation through their writings. That's how you came to believe. And Jesus prayed that you would believe. So it is inconceivable that God would not answer the prayers of his son Jesus who said, I knew, he's talking to the Father, I knew that you always hear me. You always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. John 11, verse 42. I put it strongly this way. If Christ prays for you, if Christ prays for you, you are assured that God hears and answers. What did he pray for us? John 17, verse 9. I pray for them, those whom God the Father had given him. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Okay, what does he pray about? What are his prayer requests for you? That God would protect them from the evil one, This is all from John 17, that he would make them one, or praying for unity, that they would experience the full measure of joy in Christ, that he would sanctify them with the truth, and finally, that they would eventually end up with him in glory. Wow, what is that, four or five requests? I love them all. I love them all. conclusion is given by the writer of hebrews therefore he is able to save completely those who come to god through him because he always lives to intercede for them chapter 7 verse 25 of hebrews and finally of jesus spirit paul writes the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know how we ought to pray Or what to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. With groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts. Knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. In accordance with God's will. That's Romans 8 verse 26 and 27. Don't we wrestle at times with the fact that maybe. As we pray to God, we may be asking amiss. We may not be asking for things that are according to His will. I know the men on Wednesday night will often end their prayers uh, something to the effect that, Lord, if this is your will, uh, and then they will pray in Christ's name, Amen. Here we have a text of scripture that the Spirit always prays for us according to God's will. It's just a joy to know that God prays for us. Men pray a mess. We do. But God always hits the mark through his spirit. I doubt there are many religions in the world that teach that God prays for them. Christianity teaches that God prays for his people. Secondly, we should learn that forgiving forgiven that we are forgiven through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We've learned that the Greek word used here has to do with appeasing the wrath of God by virtue of Jesus' own sacrifice in our place. He pleads our case, that's advocacy. He pays our debt, that's atonement. The two go together. Now, the only question which remains is this. Was God appeased? Fair question. Did the cross work of Jesus for his people accomplish the desired effect? Was God's just anger satisfied once and for all? Is his wrath, he has a wrath, is his wrath quenched? Well, fortunately, there are many scriptures on this. Paul writes in Romans 8, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. I've been set free by the work of receive reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 9 through 11. You all know what reconciliation is? Two people are button heads. They're at odds with one another. They're not getting on together. Reconciliation means they get together. They settle the dispute or whatever it was that was pulling them apart. And we can say, well, that's been resolved, or there, there's been reconciliation. The animosity is gone. Again, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, he tells them, Wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Sounds to me like, Atonement has worked. We're rescued from the coming wrath. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. But to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if we're in 1 John anyway. Look at 1 John 4 verse 10. This is love. Not that we loved God. He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice. Here's this word. As the propitiation for our sins. So if God the Father sent His Son to be the propitiation, it's inconceivable that He would not accept the atoning work of Jesus as the propitiation or appeasement for our sins. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit function in triune harmony to see to it that every believer is forgiven. Every believer escapes the judgment of God for sin through Jesus Christ. It's a complete salvation. No dangling strings. Everything complete. Are you a believer this morning? If you are, there's a lot that you can be joyful about. If not, can be today if you hear God's call if you sense your need of forgiveness you need to run to Christ in faith You need to confess your sins you need to turn away from those in repentance and you need to plead God's mercy the scripture promises whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved sometimes in our judicial system we hear of a person who has been charged with a crime but through their own pride i think mostly they've been offered legal counsel but they refuse it and they decide i'm going to defend myself we we hear of cases like that every once in a while they are convinced that they are as smart that they are as well versed in the law that they can impress the judge and impress the jury with their innocence. Doesn't matter what the prosecutor says, I can defend myself. May I say that if you try this on the day of judgment, you are in for the shock of your life. You are. Why? Because the judge before whom you stand has pronounced, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are none righteous, not even one. And Jesus put it this way, that failure to Christ, to trust in Christ alone, you're condemned already. You don't even know it. John 3, verse 36, the condemnation is already on you. The same verse says, God's wrath remains. Your defense will expose all of your years of sin and rebellion to God's law. It will expose your rejection of Jesus Christ as Savior, as advocate, as lawyer in your defense. And when you lose, you will not be locked in a cell. You will be confined to the eternal flames hell and destruction. Oh, and by the way, Paul writes, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Second Corinthians You're going to go before the supreme judge of the universe that knows your heart inside out, has a record of all of your whole history of your life, and you're going to try to defend yourself. I'm happy and pleased to say that I have an advocate with the Father. And it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The only righteous one there is. And our text says that he will defend his people. And he's able to defend us on the basis of his own advocacy and his own blood atonement, his own cross. work. We can say he paid for our sins. Praise him. Can you say that? If you can't say that, you're not ready to meet God. There is no... Pulling the wool over God's eyes. You cannot snow God. He's not impressed with your rhetoric. He's not impressed with your so-called good works. He's already pronounced. There's none righteous, not one. There's none that does good, not even one. You need this lawyer that John talks about. You need this advocate. You need this Savior whose atoning work pays for the sins of all who will confess Christ. May that be you today if you do not know him. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for your word, for the sufficiency. We should point that out, the sufficiency of Christ. If we have Jesus, we have it all. It isn't Christ plus what I do. It's Christ and him alone. And we're thankful that you answered his prayer. John 17. That when the apostles wrote their histories of you and the doctrines, and we got a copy of it in our Bible and we read them, you came to us by your Holy Spirit and you granted us faith and repentance. To turn away from our sin and to cling to Jesus. We didn't do that on our own. You drew us. Drew us unto yourself. You granted faith. You granted repentance. And then on the basis of that, you blessed us. You made us part of your family. I thank you for that. And I pray that anyone here outside of the blood of Christ will confess their sins today. Lord, bring them to know you in saving power. We ask this for your glory. You're always glorified. When another sinner comes into the fold. We also pray it for our good, and it is to our good that we be repentant and trust Christ in Him alone. We ask these things in the name of Jesus for the glory of our King. Amen. Our closing hymn, read book again, 495.